Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Thanks for taking a listen. I'm Ian Parkinson, and this is the Ruler Podcast. Uh, so the root of the 2018 Tour de France has been published, and already it's been poured over, picked at, and pulled apart by every expert and amateur around the world. But that is not going to stop us doing exactly the same thing. And to help me, I'm joined by the Ruler editor, Andy McGrath. Now, Andy, you like a bit of poring over a Michelin map, don't you? I do, yeah. Uh, even though I normally rely um, on a sat-nav these days, but... There's something about maps. I'm a bit of a map fetishist. Uh, I've got a fair few in my home, and my girlfriend isn't such a fan of having so many of them on, um, on the walls anyway. And Michelin maps in particular, actually. I think Michelin maps of France always uh, smell of adventure to me. That's right. And the Chevron roads are kind of picking out where to ride and where not to ride, maybe, if your legs are hurting. So, first things first, 2018, the general consensus seems to be that, um, yet again, it is another route for climbers and uh, not for uh, time trialists. And frankly, it's another route for Chris Froome to lose, really. That's right. I mean, it's hard to kind of tailor any route, particularly for a certain rider, but yeah, but more TT kilometres would mean it favours Froome and maybe Port even more. Really, whatever we say about the route, it is still how the riders race it. Like This looks like a kind of pretty innovative modern route, introducing things like gravel road sections and a very short road stage, I think, in the... Where is it? It's in the... It's towards the end, isn't it? Yeah, in the Pyrenees. That's nice to see. It should encourage attacking racing, hopefully... But if Team Sky and Froome have really strangled the life out of the race and their rivals, it, it might not mean anything. But that's, that's kind of the, the fun of pouring over it now. We just don't know what will happen. It would be nice one year that uh, the ASO announced a route and Chris Froome said, oh, I don't like the look of that. I'm really not sure how we're going <laughs> to cope with that. And it's, it is becoming a bit predictable. I wonder one year, especially if he wins this race, uh, will he target the Giro that is mountainous and... He started his career living and racing in Italy a lot, so maybe that's one for 2019 for him. So there's nothing really revolutionary uh, next year. There's two really long uh, plane transfers, aren't they? Basically from one end of France to the other, um, towards the start and towards the end. Um, But across the 21 stages, there's a a few things to look out for. Um, It's almost entirely in France this year, isn't it? I think they're going to Spain for about five minutes on one stage. But other than that, it's uh, it's pretty much entirely in France, which is becoming less usual. That's true, yeah. I think they're almost um, alternating a foreign Grand Depart with 
tours that are virtually entirely in France. Uh, there's probably more money to be made, quite frankly, from going to, say, Utrecht or Dusseldorf or London. But uh, it, it is nice to see a very French Tour de France. So there's no prologue. Um, they start in the Vendée. Um, nice part of France. That could be a good place to spot some of the racing. Um, a couple of ordinary stages. Then uh, on day three, there's a team time trial around Cholet. That might upset things a bit. It's quite hilly round Cholet. I've ridden round Cholet. It's quite surprisingly hilly for a team time trial. Right. It's quite, it's longish. I mean, 35 km. Uh, that'll set the tone and that will be a change of the yellow jersey there. Um, BMC won the TTT last time it was in the tour. Uh, in 2015, I don't find them the most exciting to watch, but actually, pro riders, several have told me that it is one of the finest arts you can perfect, is riding in that pace line and riding on the limit the entire time and not blowing up either yourself or the riders with you. Uh, you can, you're kind of only as strong as a fifth rider to cross a line. So, yeah, that... That'll be very interesting to see what happens there. And it's not something that pro road riders get to practice a lot, actually, is it? It's, it's, it's pretty unusual. It's not. No, there's only, I'm trying to think, there's probably a handful every year um, in the World Tour. So, and it also adds kind of another dimension as to which riders you pick because they're down to eight rather than nine in every Grand Tour next year. And you've got a lot of, of things to plan for, the cobbles, in Roubaix, this team time trial, kind of shepherding a leader on the flat, helping them in the mountains, and you've only got seven teammates. Who do you pick? I mean, that'll be Team Sky, BMC, um, AD2R's big worry. Although I suppose for a big team like uh, Sky, it's possibly easier to pick the right eight people than for a, for a smaller team in some ways, isn't it? Perhaps, yeah. Um, and for Team Sky, it's easier for them to step up, like Kwiatkowski can ride on the hills, he can ride in the mountains, he can do a teen time trial, he's, he's that good, he's that versatile. It, it, it helps, doesn't it? I suppose people will also be hoping that actually eight riders per team will mean, uh, possibly might mean fewer crashes in those sort of early stages when there's, you know, everybody in the peloton is, is still there, um, there's a few nervous first-timers and there's loads of road furniture and, uh, and roundabouts to, to get around. Possibly the smaller teams might make a difference there. They have reduced the size, but I haven't seen any kind of data, frankly, that suggests a bunch of 176 riders is safer than 198. Um, I think even if it was down to half the size, the sheer nervous nature of the first week would still still probably cause crashes. But... Obviously, I, I would hope that everyone gets away unscathed, but it seems every year there's a kind of decisive, defining crash, unfortunately, normally in the first five days, six days. Well, also in the first uh, five or six days, they go up that sort of northwest corner of France uh, in Brittany around Brest and Campere. Um, that's going to be windy, I imagine. It normally is, um, even in July. And again, that could be... Um, that could be an occasion for a big split in the pack. There could be some time lost there, couldn't there? That's right. Even in the first two stages down on the uh, Loire coast, that could be windy. Um, also, the Camper stage, a stage from Lorient, which is near Warren Bar, which is near Warren Bar-Gill's hometown, uh, that's got a slight hilly finish, which would be perfect for for Sagan. And they've got 
some Ardennesque short steep climbs. So that's that's not easy either. That's going to hurt most of the sprinters, pure sprinters, too much. And the finish to Meur de Bretagne, that's, that's sort of short and steep, isn't it? It is. I mean, from what I can remember, you can see the Meur de Bretagne from about 15 kilometres away. It's an arrow straight road that looks visually very impressive on TV. Uh, I think Alexis Viermo won there last time. I think it was two years ago or something like that. Yeah. And that, that'll be probably the first, first skirmish of the contenders for the race, I'd imagine. And perhaps Sagan, again, if he isn't kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> He's not kicked out in the first five days, yeah. Right. Uh, so after that is the bit that I imagine a lot of people are looking forward to. Um, it's up to the northeast corner, and it's basically the really horrible bits of Paris-Roubaix all in one go, really. It is. I mean, we should point out some of the cultural highlights as well in the first week. Of course. In Brittany, it's a cycling hotbed. You're pretty close to where Bernardino, Luisson, Bobet grew up. Chartres, the finish for Stage 7, has an amazing Gothic cathedral. I actually popped in there in 2012 because the race-defining time trial at the end, the Wiggins, where Wiggins confirmed his win, uh, finished there, and... It's incredible. UNESCO Heritage Site, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And then the race gets to the Nord, to these cobbles. I think it's 15 sectors, which is basically the last 15 of Paris-Roubaix, minus the very worst, and minus the whole of mons en pivelle and I think minus the Carrefour de l'Arbre. But it's... Still pretty grim. Extremely grim. I think this is the hardest cobbles has been in the Tour for at least 20 years. Um... And there's so many variables. Like what if it rains? I suppose in mid-July they're hoping it's going to be dry, but it could, could be wet. This seems to be the stage, maybe even more than the mountains, that's wetting the appetite for most of the fans. It's quite a small thing, but team car order will be really important there. For example, I think last time they were on the, uh, on the cobbles, two years ago, Thibaut Pino spent 30, 30 seconds just waiting for his team car because FDJ were... 15th in the team classification that that can be the difference between winning and losing at all let alone even crashing and breaking a collarbone or something like that so that will be required viewing before the world cup final which i believe is the same day i think it is yeah i think it's the same day um and uh if it's dry i guess the expectation is that sky will look after Froome. he's proved he can do it on cobbles before but uh, as bernardino uh, has always pointed out you know it's it's a bit of a lottery um that you know riding over those cobbles anything can go wrong and you can't really be sure of anything can you it's as easy as uh losing a teammate's will and then he could be in trouble um the other thing is the cobbles in the tour recently have never come so near to the mountains i mean they've got they've got a rest day and and they're straight into it with a stage from Annecy to Le Grand Bournon. Because after they get to Roubaix, the sprinters may as well go home, aren't they? There's, there's, there's pretty, well, not much left for them until they get to Paris. Slim pickings, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's a, there's a rest day, and there's just a really long flight from uh, the Belgian border, basically, all the way down to um, Annecy. Beautiful area. Um, but then, yeah, you're into the Alps, and it's the Croix de Fer, Alpe d'Huez, usual suspects, I guess. Yeah, that's right. There's... Stage 11 is from Albeville to La Rosière, which I think is a new climb for the Tour. They included it in, in the Tour de l'Avenir a, a few years ago. And that'll be interesting. That I think it's long and fairly shallow, but there are some harder 
fairly new climbers before it, I think it's a, a day of three calls. So you have this combination of untested uh, ascents and the classic, you know, Ab- Quadrefer, Madeleine, Abduez. That should start to narrow down the contenders to three, four, five, maybe six, uh, when they're out the Alps. Uh, so after the Alps, it's uh, over to the southwest uh, through the Massif Central, and uh, then we're into the Pyrenees. And again, in the Pyrenees, it's the uh, usual suspects, the Tourmalet, the Col d'Aspin, the Obisque. Um, now, the stage from uh, Po finishes in Trisurbez, and I know you're particularly interested in uh, the events in Trisurbez. It's not the most riveting stage, probably, for viewers, because it's flat, flattish. But um, Trisurbez is a very small village where, in 1975, they had uh, the first Porquelade, which is um, a festival about pigs, all around pigs. It was popularised by Eurotrash about 15-odd years ago because some of the competitions involve um, the Cri de Cochon, which is uh, human beings squ- squealing like a pig and the best one wins, and impersonating a pig, so dressing up as a pig. And they've got to really ham it up, pun intended, by uh, performing the pig's birth, reproduction and, um, and death, so their whole life cycle, basically. Um, so it's very silly, very fun. Unfortunately, it was the last one was in 2011. Oh no! It doesn't go on anymore. I know, devastating. And it's in August anyway, so it doesn't coincide with the tour. Still, in spirit, there will be a lot of uh, pork-related activity. I imagine in in Trisubets. It really rounds up a great week for gourmands because you've got the Rhone Valley at the end of the Alps. You have Valence and uh, Saint Portois Chateau. There's uh, some good red wine to be had there. Then you're whisking through Cassolet country. Uh. If you ever had Cassolet on the tour, it's just a mismatch because it's normally 30 degrees down there and you're having this meaty heart attack in a bowl that's very hot normally as well when it's served. But it is nice after a long day on the tour. The riders will be spending some time in Lourdes. Um, have you been to Lourdes? Uh, I have very briefly. It is a very strange city. <laughs> but at least, I mean... That's a very scenic area for the tour. It's an amazing area, yeah. There's going to be the Tourmalet, which has great panorama, and uh, Pyragoud as well. I think uh, the tour finished there last year, and there was a great photo that morning of it. I think it finishes on um, a runway, and all the clouds were sitting below it and were just blanketing the horizon, basically. It was fantastic. Yeah, because I think, you know, the organisers of the tour and uh, the TV companies are well aware that a lot of the appeal of watching the tour over those three weeks is actually the, the scenery and, and what's going on. Because, you know, for a large part of the day, the racing may be relatively uneventful. For most of the first ten days, first nine stages, it's all going to be as much about the Chateau as the one T group Gobert rider who's gone on a poor solo breakaway for 200 kilometres. Uh, now, the 65-kilometre stage, 38 of which are uphill, that's an interesting one. We've had short... Uh, stages in the tour before haven't we but uh, not for a while and not as short as this this is stage 17 uh Bannière de Luchon to uh, the Col de Porte which is a new finish I think for the tour because it, it, it's been to saint larry Soulon before several times that is going to be really interesting that's going to be full-on from the gun I don't envy anyone who isn't a, a climber let alone the sprinters and the Gruppetto could be time cut that day. Yeah, because the good climbers are just going to go go for it. 
right from the start, aren't they? And, and flat out, for 65k, you can. Well, they can. That's two hours of racing, I suppose. Um, and that could shake up the overall. It could not change anything. But I like this. This is an innovation right here, I'd say. Uh, having that very short, short and sharp could be the way to go in the future, rather than... I think we've seen the end of the 250-kilometre schleps we had maybe 20 years ago in the mountains. Now, the possibly crucial, possibly not, but possibly crucial final time trial on the penultimate day uh, ends up in Espelet, uh, where the pepper comes from, of course. Um, the uh, Espelet is the home of the Espelet pepper, the sort of medium-sized red uh, peppers which you see drying in their hundreds on all those sort of tourist postcards of the Basque Country. And uh, Espelette peppers are, I think, a, an AOC product, so a bit like camembert and champagne. You can only get Espelette pepper from that particular quite small area. I'm sure that will be preying on the minds of the uh, riders on that final time trial. <laughs> <laughs> there are loads of um, pepper-related festivals in the area, so maybe you know, if they have a disappointing uh, day in the time trial, they can console themselves. So after that, they're back on the plane. They're up to Huile. Um, north of Paris uh, for the final run into the Champs-Élysées. Only 115k um, and the race will be decided by then. At this stage, what's your thinking? Another, you know, a fifth one for Froome? It's hard to see past him. I think there's doubts over whether Tom Dumoulin will race this tour. It doesn't seem particularly suited to his abilities. But I think it'll be the main, the same main contenders. Richie Port if he can not crash out. He was interviewed in Latest Ruler, of course. Nairo Quintana uh, and Roman Bardet. And no Contador this year? No Contador, which is a, a shame because some of these stages, uh, like the 65km one... They're made for him, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. OK, thanks, Andy. In a moment, I'll be talking to the UK Managing Director of the cycle clothing company, ASOS. Now, if you want a reminder of just how much cycling has changed in the past few years, especially in the UK, take a walk down Regent Street in London, one of the most famous shopping streets in the world, until it reaches into the gentleman's club land around St James. Within a few hundred yards, you'll find two smart stores, one for the Italian bike brand Pinarello, one for the Swiss clothing company Assos. Now, if you're as old as me, you'll remember ASOS being among the first to develop lycra and other modern materials for cycling kit, taking us out of the dark days of woollen shorts and jerseys and chamois made of, well, chamois. ASOS previewed their 2018 range at the London store this week and their UK managing director, Richard Todd, picked out some highlights. The first thing is the expansion of the Millet range of product. So the Millet range is... Entry level for ASOS, so you're still getting a, a very good high performance product um, at, a, at a, a slightly lower price point. And we've expanded that range to introduce new jerseys, long sleeve jerseys, um, uh, more sort of uh, intermediate type uh, spring fall jerseys, um, as well as uh, a lightweight shell and that sort of thing. So that's one of the highlights. Um, the other highlight is, uh, is the Akeep RS rain jacket, or the Schlossend, which is a sort of race-focused, very performance-focused, packable rain jacket, which 
has all of the features that you'd want in a rain jacket um, at, at a price which we think is, is very fair for a very performance-focused product. That did get a lot of attention, actually. It's a lovely rain jacket, isn't it? Yeah, it is a lovely rain jacket. I've been uh, sneaking mine out of the sample box and um, riding, wearing it for the last sort of four or five months and hoping that I don't get papped. What are the sort of big technological advances at the moment in, in cycle clothing? Yeah, how much has it advanced over the past couple of years? Well, the clothing itself has has advanced um, in, in many ways. A lot of it's to do with, with the materials. At ASOS, we use proprietary materials, so we are constantly researching what products we can find in the market, what materials we can find in the market, and how uh, they can be applied or developing new new materials themselves. The brain jacket that I just mentioned is, is a good example of this. The material that we're using there has a remarkable amount of stretch, which means that you can go one size smaller um, and therefore it doesn't flap around or anything like that. And I think that one of the things that, that we do, which is fairly unique to us, is we come to these proprietary materials from a cycling standpoint. So we're not taking materials out of the outdoor world or something that may have been developed for mountaineering and then giving it a cycling cut and calling it a cycling jacket. We are looking for materials that work specifically for a very defined use in a very sort of narrow range of, uh, of conditions that you get when you are riding. In Formula One, um, people always say that you know, the technology that's used in Formula One will, will spread back to you know, the cars that you and I drive on the road. Is it the same in cycling clothing? Does, does the sort of experience you get and the feedback you get from the pro teams help? I think it's true with, with some brands. Uh, we work with the BMC racing team. And we worked with the BMC racing team. We, we began working with them this year. When we were originally approached and when we had our first discussion, uh, we were approached by some other teams as well. And their philosophy was that we would give them money and they would put our logo on product which they were buying OEM from different factories. Um, so essentially the manufacturer of the product never changed. That's not something that we are happy with. We are ASOS and our product is designed with performance in mind and it's very performance focused. So we see the BMC racing team as being an extension of our R&D lab and there are the uh, the Equipe RS rain jacket is a demonstration of that. There are a number of elements such as the cut of the cuff, the double zip, which have come specifically from requests from the BMC racing team. There's another product uh, which uh, is with the BMC racing team at the moment, which is the Liberty jacket. Um, now, the Liberty jacket is something which they have prototypes of and that I've seen photographs of them wearing prototypes and different iterations of this product I myself am yet to see it and uh, get our hands on it and it's still a couple of years away so that is a, a clear demonstration of how we are using them as part of our R&D. Can you give us a clue what's the idea behind the Liberty jacket? I think it's flexibility, it's one of those jackets which needs to work in a wider range of conditions than anything else that we have or anything else on the market so that when you are racing in a race uh, like one of the early spring classics that you're not having to take a rain jacket you're not having to take uh, anything else that you've got something that's supremely breathable water repellent etc etc but I'm still yet to get my hands on it.
there's obviously been a, a, a sort of revolution in cycling, particularly in the UK over the past 10 years or so. Um, a huge boom in the number of uh, recreational cyclists out there. Um, as far as you can see, is that continuing or is, is that boom sort of dying off? Uh, is the market for high-end cycling kits still pretty, pretty buoyant? I don't think the market's dying off at all. I think that what happened is that uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of people who came to cycling over the last 10 years. They are riding, they're riding week in, week out, and they are as demanding as and performance-focused as anybody else. In terms of the market for high-end clothing, I sometimes wonder what high-end means because at ASOS we are a performance-focused brand. Performance is at the heart of what we do. If a piece of clothing performs well, then you're more likely to be comfortable. If you're more comfortable, um, then you're going to spend longer riding. If you spend longer riding, you're going to get faster and you're going to enjoy your time more. High-end sort of suggests luxury. I question whether or not it should be considered a luxury to have a garment that is so good that you don't think about it. Sure, but not everyone can afford you know, the prices of yourself and some of the other sort of higher-end uh, higher clothing companies. So I, I just wonder yeah, how many people there are that, that can still you know, afford to um, spend that money on, on their kit. It's, it's a good question. Um, the question that I always uh, ask is, First of all, I don't think that our product is extremely expensive. Uh, if we're looking at the Milo range, for example, the shorts are £110, the jersey is £85. Uh, ASOS isn't as expensive as it used to be to get into. Um, the second thing that I would say is that actually comparatively, for something that you spend so much time in and is so fundamental to your comfort on the bike uh, in terms of a pair of shorts... If you look at that and then you look at what people demand for a pair of cycling shoes or what people demand for a saddle, there's a bit of an imbalance. So, yes, I concede that the product may appear expensive to some, but when we look at our prices, you look at our crash replacement policy, our repair policy, which is within the first two years, that actually you're getting a product which is tremendously good value. One of the things that's become very clear over the past couple of years is that you're very keen to expand uh, your role in the women's market in the UK in particular. Um, how important is that to you at the moment? We're a brand that are trying to deliver very high quality performance products to as many cyclists as we possibly can. One of the things that struck me about ASOS when I joined the company was that the women's products that we have are built with exactly the same care and attention, uh, with the same performance focus in mind as the rest of our range. In the past, I will concede that our communication did ourselves a disservice and also did a disservice to, to the female market. There were some very questionable adverts a few years ago. There were indeed, but it's something that we have owned and it's something that we have addressed and that we have, have changed our approach and we're looking forward with the introduction of, of more products for for the female market, different ambassadors, different photography. So it's something that, that I think that we stood up to and, and, and really held our hands up to. Richard Todd of ASOS. So, all that remains is the ruler quiz. Last time, we asked how many times did Chris Boardman win the National Hill Climb Championship? The answer was four times, and the winner of the box set of Cycling Climbs of Britain books was Mark Caffin.
Well, this time, the prize is two tickets to the Ruler Classic event in London. The tickets are for Saturday, November the 4th. And the question is, Murder Britannia was the finish of Stage 4 in the 2011 Tour de France. Who won that stage? The Murder Britannia was the finish of Stage 4 in the 2011 Tour de France. Who won that stage? Go to the Rouleau website, check out the page for this podcast and full details of how to enter should be there. For our next podcast, we'll be at the Ruler Classic in London with lots of star names lining up to talk to us. That's the plan. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.